Today we uh, continue our series titled Just Lead, and, and if you're new with us, we've been walking through uh, the book of 1 Samuel, which is a, a book that talks about transitions, triumphs, and tragedies in the life of Israel and individuals in the people of God of Israel. And we're learning about how to navigate life, how to live life when it's filled with transitions, tragedies, and triumphs. Uh, today we're going to look at a very significant tragedy that happened in the life of David and how he chose to navigate it. In fact, it's really interesting. I'm excited about today's, I'm always excited about our messages, but today's is really unique because I think it helps us see the Bible in a little bit more of a unique way that we often don't realize. But we're going to look at the story in 1 Samuel 22. And that's all I'm really going to do is read the story of the historical event that happened. But then we're going to focus on a psalm Psalm 52, that's David's response to it. And whether you've known this or not, the Psalms weren't just things that, that authors wrote and said, hey, let's just make some Psalms and some prayers, we'll stick them in the Bible and here they are. They actually often took place surrounded from everyday real events. And they were responses of these. David wrote most of them, but many of them were responses. They were prayer responses and songs or prayers that they wrote in response to a specific situation they were going through in life. And so we're going to take a look at that today. David's going to face this incredible tragedy. And from that tragedy, we have Psalm 52, which in its little superscript tells us David wrote this psalm during this event that we're reading about today. And so we're going to get a look at what that means. And ultimately what you're going to see here as David faces this tragedy that we see in the story is four keys to worshiping God through the injustices that happen in our life. You're going to see four keys to how you can continue to worship God in the midst of facing incredible injustices that may come through in your life. Let's pray uh, for a moment before we jump in. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 22. We'll read that story, and then we'll jump to Psalm 52 to see how David responded to it. Father, we love you, and just thank you so much for the gift of being able to worship as your people, to gather in your presence, and to have the truths and the stories that we get to open up on a regular basis of how your people navigated life in faithfulness to you, sometimes in a lack of faithfulness. And we learn from each of those examples, Lord. My prayer would be that as we look at this story and the psalm that David wrote in response, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes through your Holy Spirit to understand how we can walk through injustices, tragedies, difficult situations that every one of us is going to face in life. And how we can do it in a way that that still worships you and honors you and cares for our souls as well. And ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, in events like the Las Vegas shooting, which killed 58 people, or the shooting in Sutherland Springs just a few weeks ago, uh, which killed 26 people in a little church, uh, come across the news, it often strikes us as, as those times when we go, what's going on in our world? Where do these injustices, where does this kind of evil come from? And, and how do we navigate through it? How do we go forward when we're struck with such incredible tragedies? 
Most of us here probably won't experience a tragedy of that nature personally touching our lives. But every one of us will experience uh, some very painful injustices in our lives personally. Things like abuse, sexual abuse or physical abuse, uh, maybe fraud or, or theft being stolen from, uh, maybe abandonment, uh, the breakup of a relationship or a marriage It was an unjust way of handling something and all of a sudden you're left with circumstances you never expected to be in. Whatever it might be, every one of us, if you've lived any number of years, you're going to face some horrible injustices in this world. The goal is never to avoid them all because that's impossible. But what's beautiful about God's word is it walks us through how we can move through them in a way that's healthy for ourselves and honoring for God. How we can worship God in the midst of these injustices. That's exactly what we're going to see in our story and our psalm today. If you have your Bible with you, open it up, as I mentioned, to 1 Samuel 22. And I want to read this story. I'll give you a little context. We're going to read this story. And I'm going to pull just one simple point from the end of this story. And then the other three points, the other three keys, we'll see in the psalm that David wrote in response to this story. So let me give you a little background here. Uh, If you've been with us, you know that prior to this, David, who is the anointed king, the future king of Israel, is now in a spot where Saul, the present king, is persecuting him. He's chasing after him. He's so angry that David's getting this attention, and he's trying to wipe him out. He's basically trying to kill him. And Jonathan, Saul's son, has, has made a covenant with David. And he didn't believe that his dad was evil enough to kill David. And and so David says, well, you check it out for yourself. And so Jonathan does. And sure enough, he finds out, wow, my dad really is trying to kill David. And so they have this final meeting just prior to this event. And Jonathan says, you're right, David. He's coming after you. He says, you got to get out of here. So David escapes the castle. Now, he's been the, the, the guard in a sense. He's overseen the military for Saul up to that point. Now he's... taken off because he realizes Saul is out to get him. And what happens in chapter 21 prior to this is David flees to a place called Nob. And Nob is where the priests were at that time and Ahimelech is the priest at that moment and David obviously knows him and he gets there and he says, Ahimelech says, I'm on a special mission from the king and I had to leave super fast. I don't have any provisions. You know, can you help me out? Can you give me some food? Do you have any weapons or anything here? You know, can you just help me get to the next step? And so Ahimelech does that. He gives him some bread. He, the, the, the sword of Goliath that David had conquered and brought there, it was being stored there, so he gave him that. And David thanked him, and he, and he went on. But as he's there, if you read in verse, chapter 21, uh, this verse isn't up on the screen, but we'll get to the next section in a minute. There's one verse sandwiched right in the middle of it that as you get to understand how narrators write, they slip in details that are key to the story. And here's one of them in chapter 21. It said, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, meaning when David was speaking to Ahimelech. This guy was detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite. He wasn't an Israelite, he was an Edomite, but he was the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So that's just slipped in the middle of this story. Okay, so now we come to chapter two, and we're gonna kick off in verse six, and you can follow along on the screen if you want to as well. It says this, now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. 
Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Saul was a Benjaminite, so a lot of his closest guys were Benjaminites. He says, Will the son of Hero, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, which is David, give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of a hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. So Saul's whining. Saul's realizing, hey, my, even my son's joining David. None of my servants are telling me anything about what's going on. So he's kind of on a little rant right here. And basically you can almost hear it if you read the narrative that Saul says this and it's just kind of silent. Not one of his Israelite servants says anything. And then Doeg speaks up. Verse 9 says, Then answered Doeg the Enamite, who stood by the servants of Saul. He says, you can just kind of picture him kind of popping his hand up thinking, hey, hey, Saul, I saw David. I know what's going on. All right, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he acquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistines. That's exactly what you read back in chapter 21. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered him, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, or David, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? So notice how he adds that. He says he did give him provisions. He gave him the sword. He probably inquired for him. But then Saul puts the purpose on here so that he could conspire against me. David's just trying to escape being killed. Saul basically twists it into, he's coming after me. He's trying to take me out. Then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard. He's asking these rhetorical questions, saying, look, David's been faithful to you. He's your son-in-law. He's the captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house. He says, is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? Obviously, this would have been a common practice as David served him. No, he says, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little, And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who bore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped, 
and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, listen to David's response, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. So there's the story. And my first point, I want to pull from the very end of the story, David's response. We see this horrible injustice that takes place. And the first thing we see in this psalm is David's immediate response. And that's my first point to you. And it comes out of those last few verses of 1 Samuel 22. Here's the point. Accept full responsibility for any wrong I contributed. Whenever we find ourselves in a spot where we feel an injustice has been done against us, and we will, I think how David responds is a very appropriate response. First stop and ask, is there any responsibility I have, big or small, that's contributed or given occasion, as David said, to this event? Look at how David says it. It's very careful. Even his words are very careful to help us understand what that means. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. So he puts the responsibility where it was. Doeg's the one that basically narked him out. Saul's the one that was responsible for killing all the priests. They're the ones that hold the lion's share of responsibility in this horrible injustice. However, look at what David still says. He says, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. David recognizes, because I wasn't careful in how I communicated to Ahimelech, I didn't stop and realize, mm, this Doeg, he's one of the servants of Saul. If he sees me here, if he hears what I'm, sees what I'm doing, I might put him and Ahimelech in jeopardy. David takes full responsibility for the small part that he played, but he owns it, he accepts it, he gave occasion to it. He didn't cause it, but his carelessness gave an opportunity, that's what that word means, it gave an opportunity for something like this to take place. This is a, an issue that's not real popular today, but it's very important that as we walk through injustices, that we can have the humility, especially as Christians, to stop and say, have I contributed in some way to this injustice that's come to me? I, I may not be the one to blame. It may be 99.9% the other person's fault and 0.1% yours. But can you own that 0.1%? Because here's what I've found in dealing with situations like this, not only in my own life, but in other people's lives, that if we can't own the little bit that maybe we did that gave occasion to a scenario, we will find ourselves back in that scenario again and again and again. I see this a lot in, in marriages and couples that might come and one spouse or the other that, that's been horribly mistreated in a marriage, very unfairly mistreated, whichever one it is, and it's probably 95%, maybe 99% the other person's issue. 
But one of the things I have to realize is that when I'm dealing with one spouse, I can't deal with the spouse that doesn't want to be there and deal with their issues, even if they're 99% of the problem. So what we can deal with is the 1% of the one who's there. And here's kind of how I've seen people who maybe can never reconcile with someone who doesn't want to own their part go forward in a healthy way. Is I'll ask them questions like this. I said, were you forced into that marriage when you walked to the altar? Then I'll walk them down that path and say, what, what was it that led you to make such a, a firm commitment with someone who, who would act like this? Now, it's rare that a person changes so much after they get married. It happens, but usually, and I'll ask them this, did you not see any of these characteristics in your spouse before you got married? And almost without exception, what I'll see is they'll say, yeah, I I saw some of these things. And what I've learned is, is when you can own and, and take ownership of whatever you did to occasion the scenario, it will prevent you from walking back into that same scenario again and again and again. You won't change people who are always going to be abusers in a marriage. You won't change people who are always going to abandon a marriage. You won't do that. But you can become a person who no longer locks arms or gets into a commitment with a person that does that kind of thing. And oftentimes what happens is a man or a woman will enter back into the same kind of relationship over and over and over again. And 99% of the time, the other person is the one causing the problem. But the 1% where you occasion and allow it to happen is what often results in it continuing in your own life. It might be a financial decision. Maybe you have a business partner and you jumped into a deal with someone that you knew was maybe a little shaky, but you thought, oh, but I stand so much to gain. And you didn't take the time to see, is this person a trustworthy partner? Do they honor God? Are they faithful to their commitments? And then, In the midst of it, they bail or they back out or they bankrupt you or they do whatever and it's 99% their fault. They were the ones that bailed out on the end of the deal and you're the one that's left with the consequences. And even though they're at fault, we have to stop them first and say, have I given occasion to that scenario happening? Because I chose to enter into that agreement with someone who you probably saw wasn't worthy of that kind of commitment in the first place. If we face injustices in our lives, it's very rare that we are 100% innocent and had nothing to do with it. Even David acknowledges that here. And even though he never killed one person, David humbly stepped back and said, I was not careful with my communication. All I was thinking about was me and how I was an escape, and I didn't stop to think how my interaction with Ahimelech might affect him and all the priests in my carelessness. Sometimes that's all we have to do is own that in our first step. Second thing we see in the, sec- the, the next three things we're going to see in the psalm, very beautifully laid out, as David writes this Psalm 52 in response to this event. The first one is this. Uh, He says right off the bat, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. 
So here's the first thing David's doing, is he's speaking to his adversary in a lot of ways. He says, why do you boast of evil, almighty man? Now most commentators believe that David is writing this about Doeg. I'm not convinced. It might be, it's probably a better chance than it is. I'm wondering if he's writing it about Saul. Because Saul was the one that executed all the issues. And in fact, later on, as you'll see next week, David is not needing to revenge himself against Saul. He says, let God be the judge between you and me. I'm going to honor you as king, but I know that God's going to deal with the issues that are between you and me. I believe David's able to respond to Saul like that later on because he's dealt with Saul like this between him and God. Because Saul's really the the issue in this problem. And so here's my my point, is consider the injustice in light of God's steadfast love. Consider the injustice in light of God's steadfast love. That's what David's doing. He's doing it in a poetic way, in a rhetorical way. He says, why are you boasting of evil, almighty man? Saul's thinking, man, I just wiped them all out. See if anyone tries to to keep anything from me again. He's prideful over what he's been able to do. And and Saul, or David, steps back and gets some perspective on the situation rather than reacting to that exact moment. He says, why are you boasting, O evil man, O mighty man? You think you're so mighty? Do you not know that the steadfast love of the Lord endures all the day? He's comparing Doeg's or Saul's evil and how long it's going to last to how long God's love is going to last. And he says, your evil may be reigning for the day, but God's love endures forever. I love how Paul says the same thing, and, and David kind of does it in a mocking way, saying, hey, you get prideful, but it's temporary. Uh, our injustices are temporary, but compared to God's future glory, they're small. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, so we as Christians do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Man, just look at yourself in the mirror on a regular basis and you know that's true, right? Our outer self is wasting away. For this light momentary affliction, here's what Paul's not doing. Paul's not minimizing our struggles or our injustices because some of them don't feel light here but he's making a poetic comparison. He's saying, our light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. What he's saying is this, is it may not feel light, and it's not light oftentimes here. Some of them are horrible. But he says, that moment you step into glory and you see what awaits you for all of eternity, the weightiness of that, is so incredible that anything we could possibly walk through for this short period of time we're here on earth is going to seem light and is going to seem momentary. It doesn't right now, but it will then. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. That's what David's doing. He's not looking at the fact that Saul's boasting there and he's wiped out all the priests and and momentarily looks like he's winning. He's looking to what's unseen, God's enduring everlasting love. And he says, for the things that are seen are transient, meaning they'll come and go, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Isn't that an awesome truth? See, this perspective allows us as Christians to walk through injustices that will happen in our lives and not let them mark us as victims. 
We live in a victim-based society that wants to identify everyone by the victimizations that they've gone through. And you know what? We have. But that need not mark you and define you as a person when you step back and look at how God is working through that situation to carry out something so much greater. David continues, and I love what he does in these next few verses. Look what he says in verse two through four. Remember, this is a prayer David wrote to God. He says, your tongue plots destruction. So David's confronting his adversary, whether it was Doeg or Saul, and he's doing it in his prayer to God. He says, your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour Oh, deceitful tongue. I, I always kind of crack up at the Psalms because they're so real. It's not just Christianese niceness. You know the stuff we kind of do when we're in front of our adversaries, but then how we really talk about them when we're with our friends and they're not there? We, we, we need a balance in between here. And, and here's what I love about David. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He calls Doeg, he calls Saul what he is, but he's dealing with it with God. And God's big enough to handle that. He's got you there. You have to deal with it here because here's where we go wrong as Christians. Here's where we go wrong as people. Our natural bent is toward gossip. And all gossip is is having a conversation with someone who's really not involved in the situation and probably shouldn't that we should be having with God who is involved and will deal with it. See, the problem with gossip is it doesn't even have to be false information. Doeg didn't share anything that wasn't false. He was just sharing it with someone that didn't need to be involved in the situation. It didn't pertain to him. We can share truthful things, and often we don't even do that, but what we want to be justified so badly as people when we've been treated unjustly. So we go around presenting our case to everyone but someone who can do something about it. And the problem with us when we do that is they only hear our side of the case, which we know is the right side, of course, but, right? I mean, if we, that's exactly how we want our justice system to operate. No, judge, we just want you to hear one side of the story before you make your situation. That's why we shouldn't go to other people. We should go to God. And that's exactly what David does. And you can see that because of how he handles it, how he's able to treat Saul in the stories that we'll see going forward. The third thing we see is after, oh, did I give you the point there? Yeah, take my complaint to God. I did, didn't I? What are you laughing at? Take it up with God if you have a complaint about this message, all right? So take my complaint to God. Here's the fourth thing. And this one's a little bit longer, but watch what David does here. This is crucial to the rest of this passage in verses five, the, the fourth thing we need to do. He says, but God will break you down forever. Highlight that verse. That could be like your life verse when you have people that just seem to get after you. Say, God will break you down, baby. Isn't that cool? I love that verse. It just, it just makes you feel better. If you've been treated unjustly, just say that prayer once and you'll feel so much better after that. You won't have to go do it yourself. It says, he will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Look at the language he's talking about because he knows God and his justice. He says, the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge? 
but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. So David's stepping back and getting a perspective on what's going to happen to the wicked. No one's going to get away with anything, he says, because God is going to break you down. He's going to snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. And here's what the picture he's painting. He's saying, when that day comes, he's talking about how swift it's going to be. Not because God's going to do it the moment you ask for it. Because the Bible says over and over again that God will swiftly judge his enemies. It doesn't mean he's going to do it the moment we ask. It means that on the day that he's appointed for that judgment to come, once it starts, it's going to happen so fast It'll make your head spin. You will have no opportunity to turn if you wait till that moment. I think of these hurricanes that that we have watched, and you see them coming, and you know they're coming. There's a lot of time for them to come. They're not coming swiftly towards the shoreline. But the moment they hit the shoreline, if you haven't made preparations before they got there, you aren't going anywhere. They swiftly destroy everything. That's a picture of what David sees and understands about the judgment of God. When that day comes, it'll be too late for you to change sides. That's why God pleads with us now to turn from trusting in our own ways and our own riches and our own, our own you know, strength and put our faith and trust in him. And David's acknowledging that. And look at how he goes on. He says, to the flip side, from the judging of the wicked to the security of the righteous, he says, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God. He repeats what he said at the very beginning. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. And then he's, this is what results from that. I will thank you forever. Why? Because you have done it. Have done what? You've made me secure, God, and you've dealt with the injustices in this world. Not me. You have. And when we wait for him to do it, there'll be nothing else for you to do but just thank God for his perfect justice and holiness, his absolutely beautiful timing. And he says, I will wait for your name, for it is good, in the presence of the godly. David, when he steps back and gets perspective and sees these things, is able to be thankful and he's able to be patient for God to carry things out. And here's my last point for you, is give thanks and be patient by considering the future security of the wicked compared to the righteous. Give thanks and be patient. When you step back and get this perspective, it'll allow you to step back into the world that's filled with injustices and chuckle at the pridefulness of the wicked and almost mock the injustices that these people think they're getting away with because you know what their ultimate outcome will be. And that's exactly what David does, that's what we're going to see in him. See, our human justice system, they're very helpful. In general, they provide a lot of protection. However, they're imperfect, just like all of us humans are imperfect, and they possess some very unjust individuals at times. You aren't always going to get the justice you need from the systems that we have here on earth. But that doesn't mean you have to take things into your own hands. 
God is a vengeful God. But when he brings his justice and vengeance, he does it perfectly when we don't. And that's why David was able to treat people the way he did. Because he knew that God would take care of it in the day that he's appointed. David left us a beautiful example in this psalm. I mean, just think about it. This is a psalm of worship. It's a praise song. But it's a song of praise that he wrote in the midst of one of the most difficult injustices that he walked through in his life. And yet it resulted in this song for you and me. David's example is great for us, but we didn't need an example. We needed a substitute. Because the truth be told, you and I have perpetrated that injustice. You and I have often been in situations where we have harmed and hurt others. If not others, God for sure. We've taken our lives and seen it as our own. We've treated things like they belong to us when they've been given to us by him. We've neglected his truth and his promises to pursue our own desires. And if the truth be told, you and I are more like Doeg and Saul in this story than we are like David. And the beauty is, is that God sent a greater David than this one, not just to be an example, but to be a substitute. And Jesus was the one who was ultimately wrongly betrayed, 100% innocent. He didn't even occasion an opportunity for something like this to happen. He lived perfectly before the Father. And instead of being whisked into heaven justly as he deserved, he had these very words, in a sense, spoken to him. His tongue, he was treated like one whose his tongue plotted destruction. He was the one who was swiftly taken out of life and ripped out of his tent and taken his life away from him at a young age beyond anyone we may have known. And Jesus hung on that cross as the one who was judged by his own father for the injustices that you and I have committed, for the ways in which we have spoken lies and we have misrepresented truths. Jesus took that for you and me so that we could be transformed and changed in the midst of our own injustices to be patient with those who are wicked. To be patient in waiting on God to bring his perfect justice, knowing that when we look at Jesus Christ on that cross, we see two things. One is, God is a vengeful God. Because even when he took the sin of this world and put it upon his favored, beloved son, he would not excuse it. I don't know about you or and me, but if, if someone were to put a consequence like that on one of my children, I'd want to excuse them. I wouldn't want to punish them for someone else's mistakes. I wouldn't want to nail them to a cross and have everyone reject them and have him be humiliated and beaten and bruised for what someone else did. Because I'm not that just. I'm not that holy. I play favorites at times. 
But even when a God's own favored son was on that cross, God brought the justice that was necessary so that your sin and mine could be dealt with. The other thing it shows us is as Jesus hung there unjustly accused, he didn't revile in return. He didn't cry out to bring down justice on these wicked sinners. They deserve it. No, he called out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He had a patience for the day of judgment that he knew would come because for right now, He wants all to repent. He wants all to turn and put their trust in him because we aren't just, we aren't faithful. He did that for you and me. And any who will put their faith and trust in him will be transformed just as David was. And we'll begin to see life differently than the rest of the world. We'll be able to be patient in the midst of the incredible injustices in this land. We'll be able to be thankful that God is going to work this out in his perfect way, even in the midst of the trials that we might walk through. So I just want to encourage you this morning that if you're in the midst of a situation that's been deeply troubling and you've been treated unfairly or unjustly, that God has given us hope on how to respond and, and if you want to walk through it in a healthy way, then stop first and ask, God, is there anything in me that has given occasion to this event at all? Lord, help me to own my part, big or small, whatever it might be. If there is something I need to change, then change it in me first, God. I'd encourage you to take your complaint to him. Stop telling everyone else. Stop gossiping and and trying to win your case with only one side of it. Take it to God. He knows the case. He knows the situation. Work it out with him first before you go anywhere else. And trust him. Trust that he's going to deal with that situation more perfectly than you and I could ever imagine. And the boasting of that evil scenario It's only for a moment. But the goodness of the love of God, you're going to enjoy for all of eternity. Let's pray.